Well, let's bow our heads and pray. Father, we invite you to come and be the teacher today. Pray that you would take, Lord, the things that you've shown me and impress upon the hearts of those here those things that will help them grow in their faith and help them put aside impatience and help them to manifest godliness in their life. So come now, Lord, in Jesus' name. Amen. I don't know why you say I'm impatient. All I want is to have what I want and to have it right now. Right? That's, that's really the definition of impatience. I want to start off by telling you a, a little bit of a story of a man who lived in the 17 and 1800s. He was the pastor of a church in England, the town of Cambridge. His name is Charles Simeon. And uh, in 1831, after he had been pastoring for 39 years, he wrote to a friend of his, and he said, My dear brother, we must not mind a little suffering for Christ's sake. When I am getting through a hedge, if my head and shoulders are safely through, I can bear the pricking of my legs. Let us rejoice in the remembrance that our holy head, that is Christ, has surmounted all his suffering and triumphed over death. Let us follow him patiently. We shall soon be partakers of his victory. Now, that man had authority when he spoke about patience because he had to learn patience in his life. He became a pastor in 1782. And the people didn't want him to be their pastor. They wanted the associate, whose name was Mr. Hammond, to be the pastor instead. And so the first thing they did is that they denied him the right to bring the Sunday afternoon lecture. It's kind of like in some churches you have a Sunday evening service where the pastor preaches morning and evening. Well, the church had the right to choose who was going to bring the Sunday afternoon lecture, and they would not let the new pastor, Charles Simeon, do that. They gave it to Mr. Hammond, the fellow that they wanted to be the pastor. And so for the first five years, he was shut out of the lectureship. And then after Mr. Hammond left, after five years, for seven more years, they brought in an independent man rather than their own pastor to bring the Sunday afternoon lecture. Then they locked their pews. Now, we can't understand this because we live in such a different culture, but in that culture, people would buy a pew. It was a way of helping the church uh, with their funds. They would buy a pew, and oftentimes these pews were in boxes so that you could lock them or unlock them, and they were the property of the person who went to that church. They gave them a title deed and the whole thing. This is your property. You bought this pew. So they would lock their pews, and they would not come to church themselves, and they wouldn't allow anybody else to sit in their pew. So most of the church was vacant. He would look out over the church, and some people still wanted to come, so Charles Simeon, at his own expense, bought seats, chairs, and set them up in the aisles, in the nooks, and the crannies, and the corners of this building. But then the church wardens came, and they took those seats and threw them out into the churchyard. So from the very beginning, he had all of this opposition coming against him. He was ostracized by the members of the faculty of the college where he lived. He remained single his entire life. He lived in one of the dorms of the university, and sometimes he would actually preach at the university. And the students there held him in derision. They insulted him. They would often disrupt disrupt his services. And he even remembers, um, he, he writes to a friend and says, I remember the time that I was quite surprised that a fellow of my own college ventured to walk with me for a quarter of an hour on the grass plot before Clare Hall. 
meaning even the other professors there, ostracize him. They wouldn't associate with him. And it was such a, a wonderful experience to have one person willing to walk with him for 15 minutes that he says he had to write it down. In 1807, after 25 years of faithful ministry, his health broke and his voice failed him so that often he could only speak in whispers to his congregation. And after a sermon, he would say that he felt more dead than alive. This lasted for 13 years. He says that he believed he knew the reason for his health breaking. He said that he had entertained the contemplation that when he turned 60 years old, he would retire from the ministry and he would just enjoy life and leisure and rest and travel. And he felt like the Lord was displeased with him. And so as a chastisement, he brought this health issue into his life for 13 years. Interestingly, during those 13 years, he changed his mind and he said, okay, Lord, I will serve you the rest of my life. I'm not going to retire. And at 60 years old, the issue went away. And he had 17 more years of faithful ministry in that church. But can you imagine what this man went through? The trials, the suffering, the pain, the heartache. He had to learn patience. And brothers and sisters, you and I need to learn patience too. It's one of the important virtues of the Christian life that God wants us to develop and to manifest. So my goal this morning is to enable you to grow in the virtue of patience. And we're going to look at four different areas this morning. Number one, we want to look at the meaning of patience. What does it mean? And we can think, well, patience just means being, being willing to wait a long time for something. But if you're waiting a long time, but reading a book and in, you know enjoying it, there's no trouble... That's not really patience. Patience, here, here's the short definition. Patience is to endure discomfort without complaint. To endure discomfort without complaint. Now, when I went to dictionary.com, they gave me a much longer definition. This is what they said. The bearing of provocation, annoyance, misfortune, or pain without complaint, loss of temper, irritation, or the like. Now there's many levels of discomfort. Sometimes we only experience a very low level of discomfort, like having to wait in a long line at Walmart, right? Or waiting in traffic before you can make a turn. Sometimes it's a very high level of discomfort, like Job, who had all his possessions taken away from him, and his children all died, and his wife nagged him and he was had boils from head to toe i mean that's very very high level of discomfort and some people have paid the ultimate price by dying as martyrs for their faith so it comes in many different levels and even though patience is enduring discomfort without complaint complaint is not always verbal most of the time it is but we can complain in non-verbal ways too can't we with a sigh, or a huff, or a shake of the head, or a roll of the eyes, we can communicate that we are really ticked off about this situation. And we're not enduring it without complaint. We're complaining in nonverbal ways, but we are complaining then the same. So let's move on. Let's talk about the God of patience. I want you to understand this morning that the God, the one true and living God, is a patient God. He's extremely patient. 
The King James Version, when it translates the word patient or patience, uses the word long-suffering. And that's actually a, a better word, I think, than the word patience. Because to be patient means that you're willing to suffer a long time. You suffer long, and God suffers long with us. Sinners provoke Him day after day after day, and instead of God losing His temper or just hurling his wrath on these sinners that are continually sinning against him and shaking their fist in his face, God suffers long and he holds back his wrath again and again and again. He's a patient God. And we're going to put up a, a bunch of scriptures, and I'm just going to read them without comment. And let's just see what the Bible says about God's attribute of patience. This is Romans chapter 2, verse 4. Or do you think lightly of the riches of his kindness and tolerance and patience, not knowing that the kindness of God leads you to repentance? Or Romans 9.22, What if God, although willing to demonstrate his wrath and to make his power known, endured with much patience vessels of wrath prepared for destruction? Or again, 1 Timothy 1.16, Yet for this reason I found mercy, so that in me as the foremost, Jesus Christ might demonstrate his perfect patience as an example for those who would believe in him for eternal life. Or 1 Peter 3.20, who once were disobedient when the patience of God kept waiting in the days of Noah during the construction of the ark, in which a few, that is eight persons, were brought safely through the water. 2 Peter 3.9, The Lord is not slow about His promise, as some count slowness, but is patient toward you, not wishing for any to perish, but for all to come to repentance. So patience is one of God's attributes. And if you were to be a godly person, the word godly means to be like God. Godly. If you were to be a godly Christian, you need to grow in patience. Now, let's look thirdly at the call to patience. And here we're going to look at a lot of other scriptures too to see what the Bible says God calls us to when it comes to patience. Psalm 37, 7. Rest in the Lord and wait patiently for Him. Do not fret because of Him who prospers in His way, because of the man who carries out wicked schemes. Or Lamentations 3.25, The Lord is good to those who wait for Him, to the person who seeks Him. 1 Corinthians 13.4, Love is patient. The kind of love God wants you and I to have is a patient love. Galatians 5.22 tells us it's a fruit of the Holy Spirit. The fruit of the Spirit is love, joy, peace, patience. It comes from the Spirit working in you. Ephesians 4, Therefore I, the prisoner of the Lord, implore you to walk in a manner worthy of the calling with which you have been called, with all humility and gentleness, with patience, showing tolerance for one another in love. Colossians 3.12, So as those who have been chosen of God, holy and beloved, put on a heart of compassion, kindness, humility, gentleness, and patience. Or Hebrews 6.12, So that you will not be sluggish, but imitators of those who through faith and patience inherit the promises. 1 Peter 2.20, For what credit is there if when you sin and are harshly treated you endure it with patience? But if when you do what is right and suffer for it, you patiently endure it, 
This finds favor with God. That's an important text right there. So our God is a God of patience. He's called everyone who calls upon His name to also be patient toward each other and patient towards Him. Now, we're going to spend the bulk of our time this morning talking about the key to patience. What's the key? I mean, how do we get patience? How, how do we develop the patience? Where does it come from in our lives? Well, I want you to remember the definition of unbelief from John 6.35. Unbelief is turning away from God to find satisfaction in something else. Impatience is turning away from God to find satisfaction in our own uninterrupted plans. And I'm probably the most guilty person here because I really, I don't know why God has wired me in a way where I'm very goal-oriented and I want to accomplish a lot of things. And if things start getting in my way, it makes me very frustrated. And I'm not very patient. I think the Lord's going to really have to deal with me on this. I'm, I'm glad we're studying this this morning. Um, so impatience is a form of unbelief. Because impatience is what we feel when our plans are interrupted or when we have to wait or when we have to endure discomfort and we don't like it and we got to go through it and we feel this impatience. But it's a, form, it's a form of doubting God and His Word. Because if we believed what the Word of God tells us about God, we would have a much easier time of enduring the discomfort that comes our way. You see, we are saved in the very way that we are sanctified and in the very way that we grow in the gospel. We're saved through repentance and faith in the truth. We're converted that way, and then we begin to grow in our faith by repentance and faith in the truth. We're sanctified or made holy by repentance and faith in the truth. But it has to be faith in objective truth. Not just faith in anything. We're talking about faith in what is timeless Truth, eternal truth. And the only place to find that is in the Word of God, the Scripture. The Scripture is our sword by which we fight these sins in our lives. Colossians 1.11, can you flash that up there, Oleg? Says that This is Paul's prayer for the Colossians. He says, Strengthened with all power according to His glorious might for the attaining of all steadfastness and patience. So in order for us to attain to steadfastness and patience, we need God's power and we need His glorious might working in us. And here we're talking about the power of the Holy Spirit. Now how do we avail ourselves of the power of the Holy Spirit to develop patience? Well, Galatians 3.5 says, well, he asks a question in Galatians 3.5. Does the one who provides you with the Spirit and works miracles among you, does, does he do that by... Uh, the works of the law, or by hearing with faith? And of course, the answer is by hearing with faith. So the Spirit works among His people, miraculous ways. And I believe He works in sanctifying ways as we hear with faith. Faith is so key to the Christian life. In Acts 26, 18, Paul says that we are sanctified by faith. 
in Colossians, I think it's chapter 2. He says, as you have received Christ Jesus the Lord, so walk ye in him. In other words, we received him by faith. We walk by faith. So what are we to believe in order to develop patience in our life? I think it really boils down to two truths about God that are taught in the scriptures. The sovereignty of God and the goodness of God. If we really believe those two truths, we will be more patient people. Now the sovereignty of God. Ephesians 1.11 tells us that we have obtained an inheritance having been predestined according to His purpose who works all things after the counsel of His will. So God is working all things after His own will. Or Psalm 103.19, The Lord has established His throne in the heavens and His sovereignty rules over all. Everyone, everywhere, at all times. Or Daniel 4.35, All the inhabitants of the earth are accounted as nothing, but He does according to His will in the host of heaven and among the inhabitants of the earth, and no one can ward off His hand or say to Him, What have you done? So God is in control. That's what we mean by God being sovereign. He governs His universe that He has created. He didn't just make the clock, wind it up, and go on a vacation. He creates the universe, and then He integrally works within the universe to bring about His plans, His predetermined and predestined plans to His end. So the world is is working and things are winding according to the way God has designed them to. So God is in sovereign. He's in control. God is not even just over in control over what happens, but when those things happen. Psalm 139 says that He ordained the day we would be conceived and He ordained the day that we would die. And we're not going to live one day longer or one day shorter than what God has determined before we were even created. That's how in control. I, I believe God is in control of every molecule, every atom, every and, and every star and every galaxy. He, he's the one that rules over all things, the king of the universe. So we have to learn to trust in the wisdom of his timing and the goodness of of His providence. So first of all, we need to trust in the sovereignty of God. We need to trust also in the goodness of God. Now maybe you have an easy time with the sovereignty of God and you need to start really believing in the goodness of God. The goodness of God can be harder to believe in because we look at it our world and we see a lots of heartache. And, you know, like this Las Vegas massacre. We see sin. We see rape. We see murder. We see mayhem. How can we believe in a God that is good, right? You say, how can we really believe that? Well, do we live by sight or do we live by faith? What does the Word of God tell us about God's character? Let's take a look at that. Romans 8.28, which you already know. We don't have that one? Well, you, I'll quote it to you. <laughs> for we know that God causes all things to work together for good to those who love God, to those who are called according to His purpose. Or, Lamentations 3.25, The Lord is good to those who wait for Him, to the person who seeks Him. Or, Psalm 34.8, O taste and see that the Lord is good. How blessed is the man who takes refuge in Him. So not only is God sovereign, God is good. 
You have to hold those two attributes of God together and never let either one of them go. If you let go of the goodness of God, you're going to have a real hard time in the Christian life. If you let go of the sovereignty of God, you're going to have a real hard time in the Christian life. But if you can hold and believe and trust in the character of God in those two ways, God is going to develop patience in you. But we have to believe that. Just this last week, I was driving to a job. I got in the left-hand turn lane, and finally the light turned green, and the two cars at the very beginning started to make their turn, and the guy right in front of me just sat there. And pretty soon I honked my horn. He just sat there. I think he must have been looking at his phone. <laughs> and then the light turned red. And I go, oh, man, come on. <laughs> we got to wait for a whole other cycle before it turns green again. That's just a little tiny thing. <laughs> but you know what I mean? That, that shows me that I'm not very patient. I, I was not enduring that discomfort very well. <laughs> a few years ago, I was told by my doctor that I should have a colonoscopy. Has anybody here ever had a colonoscopy? Not very many of you. I guess you have to be 50 or so until you start having those. You don't want to have a colonoscopy. Uh, you know, I hate having colon. I've had two of them now. you got to drink like two, 10 gallons of this really nasty tasting stuff the night before, and then you sit on the toilet for like six hours. And then in the morning, you get up and drink another gallon of this nasty tasting stuff. It's just hell. So the colonoscopy itself is a piece of cake. They put you to sleep and you wake up and it's all done. It's just getting ready for it. That is so terrible. But I had to have one of those and I didn't enjoy it. And I didn't probably endure the discomfort of getting ready for my colonoscopy very well. But as a result of the colonoscopy, they found a really big polyp in my intestine that they said was precancerous. And if it was not snipped out, it would almost for sure become cancer in my body. So because of that colonoscopy, they found that problem. They went in and took a section of my intestine out, sewed me back up, and I'm good to go again. So if I knew ahead of time that they were going to find something that was going to save me from cancer and probably an untimely death, I would have no problem getting ready for that colonoscopy. I'd be happy to drink that nasty stuff <laughs> because the benefits far outweigh the, the, the negatives, right? Um, Joseph in the Bible discovered this truth as well. Joseph went through a lot of discomfort in his life, a lot of suffering. When he was only 17 years old, his brothers who were jealous threw him into a pit and then they ate a meal as they're sitting around the rim of that pit, looking down at him, probably uh, insulting him and making jokes about him. And then one of them got the great idea, hey, why don't we just sell him? We'll make some money on this whole thing. So some Ishmaelite traders are passing through on a caravan. They pulled him out of the pit. They sold him to be a slave of the Ishmaelites. He's taken away from his homeland. He goes to a far country down in Egypt. And now he's the slave of Potiphar. He's a good worker. He's a good servant. So he's made head of everything in Potiphar's house. But Potiphar's wife tries to solicit him. And he denies her. He runs. And then Potiphar's wife is so enraged that she accuses him of rape. And Potiphar has him thrown in the dungeon. And he's there for 12 years. So he goes from the pit to slavery to the dungeon all of this lasting, I don't know how many total years, but I mean, this is a good long period of time that this man is suffering for things that he hasn't done. 
He could become bitter, couldn't he? He might have had a very difficult time enduring the discomfort that was brought upon him for no real reason of his own. But I love what he says at the end of his life in Genesis chapter 50. He's talking to his brothers. And in verse 20, he says, As for you, you meant evil against me, but God meant it for good. There's our word good. In order to bring about this present result to preserve many people alive. You meant it for evil. And I went through all this suffering because you were trying to harm me. But you know what? You can't outdo God. Because even though you were trying to hurt me, God was going to use this for good. You're good. And mine. Because he was raised to second in the land as the prime minister over all of Egypt. He became like a king living in the, the, the palace. I mean, God overcame evil with good in the life of Joseph. So if Joseph had the foresight to look down through history and he could see what God was going to do at the end, I think that he would have been happy to go through all the trials that he went through because the benefits far outweighed the negatives in his life. And brothers and sisters, you and I, can look down and we can tell the end of the story even if it hasn't happened yet. The end of the story is God is going to do good for you. Romans 8.28 promises that. God is a good God. He's going to cause all things to work together for good in your life. We already know the end. So shouldn't that help us to endure now knowing that whatever we go through it's going to be, what does Paul say in Romans 8? The sufferings of this present time are not worthy to be compared with the glory that is to be revealed to us. So we need to trust in the sovereignty of God and the goodness of God. How many have heard the name George Mueller? He lived in the 1800s and by faith and prayer alone, God provided 10,000 answers and provided the needs of thousands of orphans and several orphanages in, Lung in England during his lifetime. Well, towards the end of his life, he was, I think, 60 years old. He lost his wife, Mary. They had been married 39 years. He loved her dearly. And he preached the funeral sermon. He preached the sermon from Psalm 119, verse 68. The text is, Thou art good, and doest good. And this is how he opened his sermon. The Lord is good and doeth good. All will be according to his own blessed character. Nothing but that which is good, like himself, can proceed from him. If he pleases to take my dearest wife, it will be good like himself. What I have to do as his child is to be satisfied with what my father does, that I may glorify him. After this, my soul not only aimed, but this, my soul, by God's grace, attained to. I was satisfied with God. He came to find satisfaction. The Lord took his wife, but he understood God is good. And God is going to satisfy the place that my wife took in my life. He's that big. He's that able to do that for me. Another saint by the name of B.B. Warfield, who was a world-renowned theologian. He taught at Princeton Seminary. Many people don't know the details of his early married life. He married Annie Pierce Kincaid when he was 25 years old. And as a newlywed, 
They took off for their honeymoon in Germany. There was a violent thunderstorm, and his wife was struck by lightning. And she was paralyzed permanently for the rest of her life. And B.B. Warfield, for the rest of his life, cared for her needs for the next 39 years. He cared for her as an invalid. He was still a professor at the seminary, but he couldn't leave her side for more than two hours at a time. So he would go, he would teach his class, he would come back and care for her. Then he'd go back and he would teach again and come back. She died finally in 1915. You say, how in the world did he have the strength to go on day after day, year after year for 39 years and do that? Well, I think we learn from his comments on Romans 8.28. This is what he said. The fundamental thought is the universal government of God. All that comes to you is under his controlling hand. The secondary thought is the favor of God, or we could substitute the word goodness of God to those that love him. If he governs all, then nothing but good can befall those to whom he would do good. Though we are too weak to help ourselves and too blind to ask for what we need and can only groan in unformed longings, he is the author in us of these very longings, and he will so govern all things that we shall reap only good from all that befalls us. That was his strength. He believed Romans 8.28. He really believed it, and he trusted it, and he walked by that truth day after day after day of his life. Do you remember William Cooper? We talked about him last Sunday. The man who tried to commit suicide on several occasions but wrote some of the most glorious hymns that have been handed down to the church. These are some of the words of one of his hymns. Judge not the Lord by feeble sense, but trust him for his grace. Behind a frowning providence, he hides a smiling face. Now, providence means the things that God allows to take place in his world, the things that unfold. Behind a frowning providence, you look at the world and you go, this is crazy, this is hurtful, this is painful. Behind those frowning providences, he says, God hides a smiling face. He's going to do good. We have to believe that all these barriers and all these troubles, that God is going to transform them and use them to bring good in our lives in the end. John Piper, in his book, Future Grace, wrote this, The key to patience is faith in the grace of God's glorious might to transform all our interruptions into rewards. The strength of patience hangs on our capacity to believe that God is up to something good for us in all our delays and detours. Now, can you believe that? You think, why am I having to wait so long? I don't like this. But God is up to something good. You know, if I had believed when I had to wait behind that car before I met left-hand turn lane, that if I had gone then, I would have been in a fatal accident, I would have been really happy to stick behind that car for another turn. And if we really believe that God is up to something good, we will be happy to endure the discomfort that takes place in our lives. Have you heard the name Richard Wormbrandt? Wrote the book, Tortured for Christ? Was in prison for 14 years for his Christian faith? In one of his meditations, he writes this, and you got to tune in because unless you listen carefully, you'll, you'll miss it. He speaks about a legend. A legend says that Moses once sat near a well in meditation. A wayfarer stopped to drink from the well, 
And when he did so, his purse fell from his girdle into the sand. The man departed. Shortly afterwards, another man passed near the well, saw the purse, and picked it up. Later, a third man stopped to assuage his thirst and went to sleep in the shadow of the well. Meanwhile, the first man had discovered that his purse was missing, and assuming that he must have lost it at the well, returned, awoke, awoke the sleeper, who of course knew nothing, and demanded his money back. An argument followed, and irate, the first man slew the latter. Whereupon Moses said to God, You see, therefore men do not believe you. There is too much evil and injustice in the world. Why should the first man have lost his purse and then become a murderer? Why should the second have gotten a purse full of gold without having worked for it? The third was completely innocent. Why was he slain? God answered, For once and once only I will give you an explanation. I cannot do it at every step. The first man was a thief's son. The purse contained money stolen, stolen by his father from the father of the second man. who finding the purse only found what was due him. The third was a murderer whose crime had never been revealed and who received from the first the punishment he deserved. In the future, believe that there is sense and righteousness in what transpires even when you do not understand. See, we look at things and we don't get it. It seems, Lord, why are you doing this? Why are you allowing this? We see this stuff going on and we don't understand it. And it's not, doesn't seem just, doesn't seem right. Lord, you're sovereign. Why are you letting this happen? Right? But have you ever taken a look at a tapestry before? It's a work of art. You look at that thing and say, it's beautiful. The, the image on it and the texture and the color of the woven fabric together. But if you take that off the wall and look at the backside, it looks like a jumbled mess of yarn and knots and frayed pieces of threads and ropes. and It looks like a mess. And you know, when we look at our life, we look at the backside of the tapestry. It's a big mess. It's confusing. It doesn't make sense. We don't, what in the world is this? This doesn't look like anything. But in heaven, we're going to turn that thing around. And we're going to see what God was doing in all of the pain and suffering that we went through and the, the physical things that are wrong with us that don't go away and the, the heartbreak that we have to endure, we're going to turn that thing around and we're going to say, you know, God was working in that. God was doing this and God was doing that and God has brought all of this good to pass from all the pain that I had to go through. So we have to believe in the sovereignty of God and we have to believe in the goodness of God. Now, let's close this morning with some ammunition for you to fight impatience in your life. What are some promises from the Word of God? Psalm 84.11 No good thing does He withhold from those who walk uprightly. Do you really believe that? Maybe you, you don't have a husband or a wife or a child and you think, that's a good thing, Lord. You've withheld that from me. Well, it must not be a good thing yet for you. Maybe it's not the right time yet for you. Or Psalm 119.68, You are good and do good. Teach me your statutes. Or Psalm 147.11, The Lord favors those who fear Him, those who wait for His loving kindness. We need to learn to wait on the Lord for His timing. Or Proverbs 3.5 and 6, Trust in the Lord with all your heart. Do not lean on your own understanding. 
In all your ways acknowledge him, and he will make your paths straight. Isaiah 40, 31. Yet those who wait for the Lord will again will gain new strength. They will mount up with wings like eagles. They will run and not get tired. They will walk and not become weary. Now you might be physically weary, but the Lord can give you an inner strength, an inner energy, an inner power that comes from the Holy Spirit communicated to your spirit. Romans 5, 3-5. through 5. And not only this, but we also exult in our tribulations. We do? Why do we do that? Knowing that tribulation brings about perseverance. That's a good thing. And perseverance brings about proven character. Proven character proves that I'm a Christian. And proven character brings about hope. And hope doesn't disappoint because the love of God has been poured out within our hearts through the Holy Spirit who was given to us. Or Romans 8.28, we know that God causes all things to work together for good to those who love God, to those who are called according to His purpose. Or 2 Corinthians 4.16-18, we do not lose heart. In other words, we don't succumb to murmuring and impatience. But though our outer man is decaying, yet our inner man is being renewed day by day. For momentary light affliction is producing for us an eternal weight of glory far beyond all comparison. While we look not at the things which are seen, this is where faith comes in. We don't look at the things which are seen, but we look at the things which are not seen. For the things which are seen are just temporary, but the things which are seen are eternal. He's saying, get your mind off of that thing that is bringing you discomfort. Fix your gaze on Christ and the glory that He has for you. James 1.12 Blessed is a man who perseveres under trial. For once he has been approved, he will receive the crown of life which the Lord has promised to those who love Him. The crown of life awaits you, folks. Revelation 2.10 Do not fear what you are about to suffer. Behold, the devil is about to cast some of you into prison so that you will be tested. And you will have tribulation for ten days. Be faithful until death and I will give you the crown of life. These are promises, brothers and sisters, that you can bank your soul on. And when you start to get weary of going through the pain... Go to the Word of God. Fill your spirit with His promises. Take one of those promises and meditate on it. Memorize it. Mull over it. And God is going to give you patience. He's going to help you to endure without complaint. Amen. Amen. Lord, we ask that you would do what your Word tells us you will do. We trust you, O God. Develop in us a patient spirit, Lord. Lord, we repent of being so impatient and so complaining and so murmuring, just like the children of Israel. We know it does not honor you. And we ask, Lord, that you would just work in us that which is pleasing in your sight. In Jesus' name, amen. amen.